It is, uh, it is good to see you. It's great to worship with you. Uh, we'll uh, pray in, in a moment. Uh, all the worship team, thank you so much for your leadership um, this morning. Uh, always such a blessing, uh, such a blessing to be able to worship. Um, <clears throat> so uh, if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are uh, so grateful, uh, Lord, this morning. Uh, we are um, amazed of your uh, kindness that's poured out to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our cornerstone, the very first stone that can be laid in a person's life. And if that stone is laid, and if we build our life upon that stone, your word tells us, Lord, that, that all of the rest of the areas of our life will be upright. They'll be plumb. And so we are so grateful for that hope. Uh, Father, we pray. Um, I'm not sure what was happening, and but Lord, for... Um, Whoever is sick or whoever's hurting, we pray just as a congregation right now, uh, Lord, that you would uh, be with those in the lobby, that you would encourage, that you would, um, Lord, bring your strength of healing. We pray for the doctors who are back there now, that uh, you would give them uh, great accuracy and wisdom and understanding. Uh, we, we do pray, Lord, that you would protect life. And so, um, Lord, lift, uh, lift um, that person to you. God, as we come to your word in Romans, we are uh, amazed that as we have come to the last chapter of this book, how you have used this book to encourage and exhort and correct and train and enlighten and open our eyes uh, to give us understanding. Uh, we're, we're thankful and we pray, Father, that as we finish up chapter 16, um, Lord, right now, that, that you would do the miracle in our life that you talk about in the Bible, and that is that we would be able to understand your word, that we would believe your word, and that we would apply your word. God, we confess as a people, those of us who understand what your word even says, it says, Lord, that there's no way for us to do that without the intervention of your spirit. And so we humbly come before you this morning and ask that you would be our teacher that you would speak through weakness in myself, that you would speak through so many distractions in people's lives. And God, that you would help us uh, to grow mature. Uh, and so we thank you for this chapter. Uh, we ask you for help and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the 16th chapter of Romans, if you have your word with you, um, if, uh, if you don't, there actually should be uh, one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. We think it's important for your eyes to see the scriptures as they're read, as they're taught, and as you read them yourself. Um, and um, not just on a Sunday, but every day. And so if you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. This year, uh, we have been in a series through Romans. Uh, most of the chapters, we've done two sermons per chapter. There was one chapter, we did three. and chapter 16, we're doing just one. And so uh, we have all of chapter 16 for this morning. There's three sections. I'm going to read it in three separate sections. But, you know, it's sort of uh, fascinating to me that in spite of the overwhelming significance and popularity of Romans, in spite of the fact that it is loved through generations and it's loved in every culture where it's read, Romans is such a pivotal writing in all of human existence. It's fascinating to me how its final chapter is often overlooked. Um, 
after 15 chapters of this life-giving, um, soul-saving uh, good news where he talks about all the mercy that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, he arrives in chapter 16, and chapter 16 is often treated like those really poor, lonely words at the end that are tucked away at the end of a college acceptance letter um, that never get read, right? So, so, you know, you're a senior in high school, and you've applied to these colleges, and one you really want to get to, and you get the letter, and you start reading, and it's like, blah, 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 blah. We are pleased to announce, right, that you've been accepted. And then there's another terribly unfortunate two paragraphs that follow that that no one ever reads because everyone's so excited about that they've been accepted. And this is kind of like Romans chapter 16. It contains very little. In fact, there's only two imperatives in the entire chapter, two instructions for us. You can say it that way. Very little explicit teaching and tons, literally 27 personal greetings that are given to people that we know little or nothing about. And many of you this week are hurting. Some of you lost your job. Uh, some of you had a bad diagnosis. We know that there's folks in the family who have lost people, uh, loved ones in the last week, the last two or three or four. And so as you're reading through Paul's greetings to people that you've never met, you have to ask the question, why should I care? Why should I care for Paul to greet a man named Rufus because he's been chosen? Why does that matter to you? And what I want to just encourage you, even before we read the first 16 verses, is with this idea, is that there literally is a God of the universe who has written a book and included Romans chapter 16 as part of his good news to you. And he, according to his sovereign knowledge, chose not only to appoint Paul to write this and think this, but he chose to preserve it through generation after generation after generation so that Romans chapter 16 finds itself in the Bible that's in your lap or on your phone this morning. It's, an, it's a remarkable thing that we have. And so even before we get there, though, I think it's important that you understand, in particular, if you're new here to Providence, okay, well, what's happened before Romans chapter 16? And so I want to uh, sort of break it down very, very simply for you. The mercy that we read about in the first 15 chapters. You see, the thing starts with five chapters where Paul is trying to convince us that we are sinful, that we are in need of a savior. And that if, with, and, and if we don't have a savior, is that we're gonna stand before God and we will not be ready for all eternity. And so this is where he starts. And he starts with a verse such as Romans chapter three, verse 23, which we memorize. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You move just a few chapters later. And in spite of our sinfulness, God tells us something about him, even in that section where he's really highlighting our need, our moral bankruptcy. And there in chapter five, verse eight, it says this. It says that God shows his own love for us in this. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, you move into the next section, which is chapters 6, 7, and 8. In these three chapters, what we're really reading about is this amazing thing that Jesus Christ came. He literally did come and he died. And when he died as a righteous man for unrighteous people like me and like you, is that he offered us an amazing invitation. And that is that if we would look to Jesus Christ and trust Jesus alone, that he would take away all of the sin that he's described 
that's true about us in the first five chapters of the book. And he would give us his righteousness so that we could stand before him totally forgiven. And so you have verses like Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It says, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, you get to chapter 8, and in chapter 8, it's sort of an explosion of just the, 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 uh, the incredible um, uh, weight has been lifted from Paul. And now he wants to tell the kind of life that we can now live in Jesus Christ. And he starts in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason is because that Jesus' righteousness for those who look to him and trusted him has literally been given to that person. So it says in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says that all the righteous requirements of the whole law, the whole Bible, have been fulfilled to completion in each of our lives who have trusted Jesus Christ. And so he says we're justified. We're declared innocent. Well, then you get to three more chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And there what Paul talks about is he has this grief of there's people, his own people, the Jews, who have not yet trusted Christ And he wants to talk about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And he there talks about the fact that God has sovereignly chosen people unto salvation. But he also talks there about our responsibility in chapter 10, verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And all of this culminates at the end of chapter 11 with this explosion of personal worship. Paul, I can just see him there. And all of a sudden, he's, 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 he's just describing one piece of the gospel of this soul-giving, life-giving good news. And all of a sudden, he gets to the end of chapter 11, and he just explodes. He has to sing, but there's no instruments. And so he just starts saying it. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift that he should be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, then you get to the last section. And it's the last five chapters of which 16 is the last. It starts in chapter 12. And what he wants to do is look back. And he says, now, I want you to think about the mercy that has been given to you. Now, mercy is different than grace. Grace is when you receive something that you don't deserve. Mercy is sort of the opposite. Mercy is when you don't receive what you do deserve. And so after five chapters of talking about the wrath that we deserve, the condemnation that we deserve, he talks 11 chapters of how God has rescued that we don't have to endure those things anymore. And now what he wants to do is he spends five chapters telling us how to live in response to this kind of mercy. And so he says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, according to the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Where you say, God, I don't understand everything, but I give you my life. I entrust my life to your will. I believe what you've written in the word, in the Bible, is your word. And I'm going to yield my life to it, even when I don't understand. Well, a few verses later, in verses 4 and 5, this is really important to chapter 16. 
he tells us that part of living out the gospel, part of living in response to the mercy that we've received is that we recognize that we've been made a part of a family, a family of faith. And so he says in verse four, he says, for as in one body, we have many members, meaning like I have many members. I have hands, I have arms, legs, ears, right? This is what he says. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we're many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then he spends the next five chapters telling us how are we as the family of God going to get along? How are we going to forgive one another and love one another and serve one another and pray for one another? How are we going to forbear with one another when we think differently about things that are not essential? How are we supposed to live together? And he gets in all of this to the very end, the last chapter. And he doesn't have so much instruction for us. He has an example of how he has sought to live as part of the family of God. And this is what he says, the first 16 verses. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys, greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Ari. Now, in the first service, right, this word, Aristobulus, is probably how you say it. I have, st- I have stuttered over that word all week, so I'm just going to call him Ari. okay? He's a great guy. <laughs> I'm going to apologize to him when we get to heaven, but, but, uh, but he's there. Verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlygon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermos, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his, his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I want you to uh, read verses 21 to 23, because the first 16 verses, he's writing to believers in the church of Rome. But what we're told is he also has a team of eight that's with him as he's writing, that he, and he wants them to be named as well. And so he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. What that means is he was Paul's scribe. Paul was saying it. He was writing it down for him. Gaius, who is hosting me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now, what does that have to do with you and with us today? The first principle that I want you to see here is this, is that God's mercy compels us to invest in Christ-centered relationships. 
His mercy compels us to live in Christ-centered relationships. About a year and a half ago, our family was in uh, the base of Mount Rainier um, out near Seattle. And um, there was this kind of a curio store, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, They had an entire wall full of these, um, I guess plaques is the best way to say it. They're not engraved. It was like a piece of wood and someone had painted all kinds of these pithy, wise sayings on them, real practical things. And some of them were really, really wise. There was one of them that, that, uh, that, that really matches what I think Paul would tell us here. And it said this, if you want to run fast, run alone. But if you want to run to the finish line, run with friends. In other words, as you're walking through life, and as you're engaging in the craziness of the world that we live in, the fact is, is you can run faster if you run alone. The chances are you won't finish. But those who want to finish, it may take you a little bit longer because you have to spend more time forbearing with people and encouraging people and helping people up and having other people to help you up. But if you really want to finish... He says, you ought to run with friends. And I think this is what he's saying here. He's saying that God did not make you and, or me to run alone. If you think about just even how God created us, right? You and I were created in the image of a relational God to be relational people. Your innate abilities to talk and to listen, to sympathize with people. No one ever trains your heart to sympathize with people, and yet it does. To show empathy. Your, your nerve endings can recognize the, 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 the contact of human touch. It feels different than me touching this or, or a wall. There's, there's something about human touch that, that, God rec- that, that God built us to recognize. Well, all of these things are clues that you and I were built to be relational people, to run together with people. Every single person in this room and outside of this room has a heart that echoes God's garden declaration. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. You are meant to run with people. And furthermore, the mission that God has given us, those of us who have trusted Christ, cannot be accomplished alone. It needs other people. It needs a team. No matter how gifted or mature or courageous you are or become, you will never out grow. You will never outpace your need to have people in your life who love Christ and love you enough to hold you accountable and to correct you and to pray for you and to love you and to build you up and to strengthen you. You need people. God made you that way. And Paul, who's probably the most courageous, mature missionary ever, List 35 people by name as partners in ministry. Now, when you read the first 16 verses, you kind of look at that and it just kind of jumbles together. Basically, I just kept saying, greet this person, this person, this person, this person. And if you just look at that, you think, well, there's probably not a whole lot for me. So let me just skip down to verse 17 because it says, I appeal to you. Okay, now I have something to do here. We, we, we love to find the do parts of the Bible. It's, it's really sad that we're built that way. It shows that we cannot help but want to earn our way. But there's 16 verses here that talk specifically about things you need to know. But it's hard to see it. And so what I did was I put the text, the first 16 verses on one slide. It's gonna be really, really small, but I wanna show you 
what he's doing in these, okay? First of all, this first slide, you see all the words in red are the word greet. He wants to greet a lot of people, right? There's a lot of people. The word greeting, it, it, it conveys, I know someone, I love them, and I want to extend my love and appreciation or acknowledgement of who they are to someone. And so there's a base of affection. There's a base of love in the word greet. Now, if you hit the next slide, what you see is a bunch of names. And a lot of those names, especially for a man like me who grew up with a tremendous speech impediment, this was a terrifying text to read to me. I practiced all week, right? I, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, I, I listened to it, read all kinds of stuff because I thought that there's no way I'm going to make it through. So I'm feeling pretty good right now because I'm not going to read it again, okay? But, but, uh, but you look at all those names. And what's interesting about names is, is in particular when they're used, they convey meaning, don't they? In fact, they also not only convey meaning, they also convey relationship. They convey value. When you take the time to know someone's name and use that person's name and you get it right, that person feels good about it. This is why Jesus even tells us in John, John chapter 10, verse 3, when he's talking about the relationship between him and the sheep, which is us, he talks about the shepherd and the sheep. He says, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. Isn't that cool? The God of the universe knows your name. You're not a number to him. You're not just a human being down there to him. No, you're a name. He knows you. And so I believe what you find here is, first of all, is there's this source of, of, of love within the heart of Paul that he wants to convey to somebody else. Then there's second, the second slide was the recipients of that love. And all the rest of the words in this chapter tell us why these people are the recipients. What is the connection? This is the third one, the third slide. I want you to notice how Christ is the connecting point to all of these relationships. A Phoebe, she's in the Lord. Fellow workers in Christ Jesus, first convert to Christ, in Christ, beloved in the Lord. Fellow worker in Christ, approved in Christ, in the Lord, workers in the Lord. They worked hard in the Lord, they were chosen in the Lord, of Christ. There's nothing in there that says, because they love softball like me. All of these relationships were built on, you know Jesus and I know Jesus, we're a part of one family I want to extend my love to you. And the reason is because of Jesus. We're friends for Jesus. On mission together for Jesus. We're connected for him. And that's why God's mercy, when you recognize what you do not have to endure because of his grace in our life, one of the things that happens is that you start investing in Christ-centered relationships, not only for your benefit and for theirs, but because the mission is contingent upon us gathering together and doing this as a team. They were a team. They were all about the same thing. And so I want to show you in these connecting points, these in Christ, these, these very special words that connected these individuals to Paul, I want to show you three different categories and how they apply to us and how we can invest in these kind of relationships. First is, is that you and I can invest because together you and I, we've been saved. We've been rescued. Look what it says in verse five. He goes, this guy was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Verse seven, 
it says that they were well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Now, look at verse 10. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. This is one, this is a, a very, uh, um, uh, it, it's a word that qualifies the kind of relationship, the, the, the mercy that God poured out specifically to that individual. He's been approved by God. God looked upon him and he says, you're enough now because of Jesus. And he highlights that thing in his life. But also notice that he highlights something in Rufus's life in verse 13. He says, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Chosen. He spent three chapters on people who were chosen by God. And now all of a sudden he picks one of them out. He says, Rufus, he was chosen in the Lord. Now you have to ask this question. All of these people who knew Jesus Christ and all of us who know Jesus Christ, we've all been approved and we've all been chosen. So why do you think God or uh, Paul specifically chose that as the connecting point with these individuals? And this is why I think he's doing this. I think as he as he sat down and he looked, I think Paul is simply expressing the very first characteristic about Christ in their life when that person came to his mind. So maybe there's this guy and he's really struggling with insecurity. His name is Apelles. Maybe he continues to sin like all the rest of us do, but he feels the weight of that even more after he's come to conversion in Jesus Christ. And he's wondering, he's always wondering about, have I lost my salvation? Am I enough? Did God really give me any gifts or skills that that are really important to him? So when Paul lists his name, he goes, look, Brother, you're approved. God's accepted you just as you are. And then he gets to Rufus and he says, he's chosen. Now, maybe he and Rufus is, have, have, have had some long conversation one night on a boat about, about election. Perhaps Rufus was the worst sinner Paul had ever known besides himself. And he was just absolutely amazed that God would save Rufus and everyone else would as well. I don't know why. But what I do know this is that the foundation of Paul's affection for every single one of these individuals was his knowledge that he stood with them at one point in time at the precipice of God's wrath. And then they all watched Jesus jump off that precipice so that they wouldn't have to. At one point in time, together, they were all in as much danger as is possible. And now together, they are all as safe as is possible because of Jesus Christ. And you and I can invest in relationships with other believers because we have the most significant thing in common, and that is that we are all recipients of mercy. Tonight, we're going to do a lot of important things, right? We're going to vote on Mark as a worship pastor here at Providence. And as important as that is to to them and to me, to, to be totally honest with you, to me, that's not the most significant thing that's going to be actually verbalized and seen tonight. Now, you and I are going to have the opportunity to invest, if we will choose to do so, in celebrating the baptism of 14 people whom God has approved and chosen and saved and say, we're a part of you and you're a part of us. We can invest in those relationships and turn off whatever it is that we're doing this afternoon to say, that's my family. I'm connecting with those people tonight. Investing because of mercy. 
Well, a second thing that he shows us of why we can invest is because together we can commend one another as family. We can commend one another as family. Look at verse one and two. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. (laughs) Now, it's very likely that Phoebe is the very person that delivered this letter to them. Phoebe is the only person not connected with the church in Rome. They don't know her. That's why he says, I'm commending this person to you. You don't know her. I need you to feed her when she gets there. Centria was a port. It was a a suburb of Corinth. Paul is writing the book of Romans in Corinth. And so most people believe, we don't know for certain, but because it doesn't just say she did that, but most people believe that Paul handed that letter to Phoebe, and she brought it to the church in Rome. I want you to think about this for a second. If indeed that's true, and I believe it is, if that's true, I want you to think about the most valuable thing you have, your greatest treasure on this earth. What is it? To me, it would be my wife, followed very closely by my three sons. So you ask this and you go, okay, well, who would I entrust those things with, those people with? And the answer is someone that I would really trust. I would not entrust a treasure to somebody that I didn't trust. Now, I want you to think about this with that in mind. Imagine the trust that was conferred upon this godly generous woman. The word patron means that she was a, 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 a financial backer of the mission. She was a successful businesswoman and she leveraged her business and her finances for the advancement of the kingdom. So imagine the trust that was conferred upon this godly and generous woman to place in her hand the only copy of what is today the doctrinal pillar of the New Testament and ask her to bring it alone by foot to a church 650 miles away. And it got there, which is why it's in your Bible today. Because Phoebe was awesome, right? She was amazing. And Paul recognized that and trusted her. And then he says this. Now, look, I want you to welcome her. And then he says, why? It doesn't say because she's my friend. It says because she's our sister commending one another as family. Tonight, you can come back and invest in relationships connected by Christ by welcoming 40 new members to our body of faith here at Providence. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. I think the last sort of theme you see in these connecting relationships is this idea, together we're partners in ministry. Notice over and over, he says, We're workers, right? Verse three, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers. Verse six, greet Mary who has worked hard. Verse nine, greet Urbanus, my fellow worker. Verse 12, greet the workers in the Lord. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker. You see, all of these believers are about a common mission. They were all about leveraging their lives to make Christ known. Every single one of them had their hand on the oar and they were all rowing together. 
You see, Christians who labor together and Christians who hurt together and fail together and win together, draw together. Even this afternoon, there's a mission trip informational meeting. It's in prisons. It's at 1230. And we're praying. We're saying, God, would you mobilize this next year that we can fill up 14 mission trips this next year in 16? Now, what's it going to take to get that done? Not only does it take a lot of people to go, it takes a lot of people to give and a lot of people to pray. Not everyone can do all three, but we can all do one of those three and it can get done. You see, when I think about and I watch the congregational, you, your generosity in pouring out your life and your resources into the worship and the ministries and the discipleship and the hospitality and serving together here at Providence, I find myself like Paul loving you deeper because of your partnership. When I watch our deacons and elders investing enormous hours and tears and prayers into serving and leading this body respectively, I find myself like Paul loving these men, you men, deeper because of your partnership in this mission. I watch our church staff every single week laboring behind the scenes, often without any honor and oftentimes without notice. And I find myself like Paul loving you deeper because of your partnership. I watch our fellow pastors at Providence and pouring their lives out in unplanned crises and late nights and family stresses and never-ending responsibilities and preparations. And I find myself, just like Paul, wanting to list these men by name, saying David and John and Dave and George and Thomas and Ryan and Brian and Trey and Bob and Sean. I love you deeper because of your labor in the gospel. And you see, when you, when you look at what Paul's doing here, he's 650 miles away from a church he's never visited. And he's calling 27 people by name in that church. What it shows us is that Christ, when Christ permeates our heart and then he permeates our relationships, we find the most lasting friendships on the earth that distance cannot thwart. If your friendships are based on the gospel and Jesus Christ, you can move away because of the mission and remain friends. And this is the hope that we all share. So what can you do? How do you invest? Well, the first thing you have to do to invest in Christ-centered relationships is you have to connect to Christ. If you've not known Christ as your Savior and Lord and trusted in him, we commend you as a church body to him. Look to Jesus. For those of you who have, we encourage you to connect to a local body. And if you choose Providence as that local body, I would ask you to participate in a life group or to serve with other believers in a ministry. You see, learn people's names. I can't, I I wish I knew every single person's name here. I don't. I, I literally pray about name learning every week and I work on it every week and I still don't know many of your names. And there's a possibility, I suppose, that that may never happen because we're a transient city, people come and go. But the thing is this, if every one of us is seeking to learn names and we're all seeking to connect with other people, you may not know everyone's name and I may not know all your names, but we'll all be known by someone. To learn people's names, to love people 
to keep up with people when God sends them out to do a new work in ministry, to give you your time and resource for the health of the body and her ability to accomplish the mission of glorifying God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and worship him. Because of mercy, don't run alone. Don't run alone. The second thing I need to get to, and I'm about out of time anyway, look at verse 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the second principle, if you're taking notes, is that God's mercy compels us to pursue truth and unity. Both of them. Truth and unity. Now, it's interesting how he gets there here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. So what he's saying is this, be a unity hawk. Long for unity, pursue unity. And when you see somebody that's trying to divide the body, don't go with that. Don't, don't, don't agree with that. But what's interesting is the method that he tells us to oppose that. He says, avoid them or divide from them. So, so he says, look, care so much about unity that you identify people who are causing division in the body, and divide from them. But he puts a key right in the middle of those two imperative commands to tell us when it's right for us to simply defer for the purpose of unity, and when is it time for us to avoid and divide. And that key is doctrine. You see, for many people, the only path to unity in the world is one that slaps the hand of everybody who says that I know truth or that my idea, because it's God's idea or because it's my idea, is better than your idea. So in our culture, everyone gets an idea trophy and all the trophies are the same height, right? You can have a really bad idea and you get a trophy. You can have a good idea, you get a trophy. And we have a whole culture that says everybody gets a trophy and nobody's trophy is better than anyone else's. And this is the path to unity. The Bible says, no, it's not. And history tells us it's not. We repeat history so much because we never listened to it and learned at it. And we slept through it when we were in school. History tells us a different story, though. You see, this all makes sense if God had not spoken into our mess, but he did speak into our mess. After we rebelled against God, God wrote us a book and he sent his son to tell us how to reconcile us to himself and to live in his world with others. And every time humanity has chosen to ignore this book and his truth, what you find in this world is not peace. You find the rise of dictators where might makes right and the weakest get hurt, whether they're the unborn or whether the minorities or whether it's the poor. You see, we all think, boy, we'll just all gather together. But the problem is we don't. Our fallenness knows that in conflicting ideas, someone has to be the arbiter. And so when we ignore the book and we ignore what God has spoken into this world, the arbiter becomes whoever has the biggest muscles, who has the most power. So let's just throw that right into an illustration that's really uncomfortable. And for those of you who have gone through this, there is mercy abounding 
even in this area, but take abortion. That's not a political issue. It's a God issue. You take abortion and you have two people and they have conflicting ideas if they could both speak. One of them says, I don't want to be a parent. The other one says, I want to live. And abortion says, everyone's ideas matter. But the most powerful people are the arbiter. That's not peace. That's not a peaceful relationship. That's not unity. It's not. You see, when people throughout history have chosen to ignore God, we don't get harmony, we get concentration camps and dictators. Psalm 85 verse 10 says that righteousness and peace literally kiss each other. What this means is this, they're best friends. If you want righteousness, you have to embrace peace. If you want peace, you have to embrace righteousness. There is no peace without righteousness and there's no righteousness without truth. So the issue here, or what Paul is telling them, is not if my ideas are better than your ideas. The issue is that God's ideas are better than all our ideas. And if we will yield to him, we'll all know peace. But because Paul knows in this earth and fallenness and rebellion against God, that's not going to happen. He tells the Christians to give preference to the voice of God instead of the preference to the voice of people. They're opposing God. Now, in doing that, I'm going to give you two real practical things, okay? Number one is this, is in your avoiding the divisive, leave room for love. You can avoid people in love. You can bake them a cake. You can give it to them. You can write them a card. You can pray for them. You can hug them. You do not have to be cruel, rude, or insensitive to people that you are dividing from. You can still leave room for love. And the second application is this, is don't be so obsessed with spotting error that you fail to rejoice in truth. A lot of us listen to these sermons like a guy who is charged with the responsibility of being the inspector of every float at a parade. And he walks around and he goes, okay, right height. Yeah, it looks good. Okay, next. And he goes, next, and next, and next, and next, and next. And he's inspected every float, but he's enjoyed none of them. And a lot of people, we sit like we're gatekeepers. So that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. Okay, we had a good sermon today. Did you rejoice in any of it? Did you, your heart, rejoice in anything God has said? Not me, God. Is there anything that causes joy to swell up in your heart. Some people, we, we, we care so much about being, being, the, being, the, being the Bereans that you read about, where they want to make sure everything is, which is still a really good thing. Paul tells us to do that, but he said, make sure you don't lose your ability to love what God has said. The last thing he finishes with a doxology. He says, now to him, verse 25, who is able to strengthen you. I love what he does here. Paul knows where he wants to end, but he can't bring himself to sign off so simply. So he strings phrase after phrase together in order to summarize the gospel as the basis for the strength that God's going to provide us. So he says, now to him who's able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Then he gets back to what he started. 
But to him, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Last principle is this, is that God's mercy compels us to ascribe glory to God. The word doxology, dox means glory, ology means word. When we talk about doxology, what we're doing is we're ascribing God glory through our words. And this is how he ends. You see, many kings have tried to secure their power and receive glory by keeping their citizens weak and poor and uneducated. What Paul says here and how he ends Romans is that's not the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus didn't come down here and put us under him and make us carry him around like a king. No, he put us on his shoulders. He was born among sinners, with sinners. He walked with sinners. He fed sinners. He embraced sinners. He taught sinners. He died between two sinners. And he did this because Jesus Christ loves to glorify himself by strengthening sinners. People who are in need, just like me. And because of this, we say to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful, so thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus. We're thankful for mercy that's been poured out to us. And I pray for us as a church family, God, that you would inspire us or to see the weight of mercy and that it would lead us to ascribe glory to you in our worship. Lord, that it would lead us, Lord, to, to, be, to be passionate about truth and unity. That God, your mercy would also lead us to invest in Christian relationships, not just for our encouragement, but for the completion of the mission that you have for us to make Jesus known in this world. And so it's with joy that we worship you. It's with joy, Lord, that we also give to you now and pray that you would take this offering that we're about to take and you would use these monies to expand the glory of Jesus Christ throughout the world. We love you and we thank you for the privilege to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.